This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. If you haven't been around, what we're doing is, in the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the New Testament, uh, there it starts with three very short little letters to, I'm sorry, to seven short letters uh, to these churches. So there are these various churches uh, in the first century, and Jesus speaks a letter to them. And he, he sends a message to them that tells uh, about uh, something about the church. He's kind of evaluating the churches. He's encouraging them uh, to follow him. They are in a world that is very hostile to Christianity. So uh, in varying ways, some of the, some of the churches are in cities that, are, uh, that like require that you worship the emperor, Caesar, for instance. This is all in the first century, probably the, like in the years 90, 95 AD, somewhere in there probably. So uh, anyway, these are when these letters are written. Today we're going to read the letter to a city called Thyatira. I've never heard of that city. Well, it is the least probably noted city of all the seven. It's a small city of no real note, but it gets the longest letter. So here's what uh, Jesus says to this church, the church at Thyatira. I'm reading from Revelation 2, beginning in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, let's pray that the Spirit will give us an ear to hear what he's saying, just as John wrote in that last verse there. Lord, we come to you this weekend, and we are at different places in the room. Uh, Many of us are a bit tired and groggy and feel like we're still on vacation, and I pray for those of us who feel that way, you would give us alertness. Lord, many of us are a little bit numb to you right now. Perhaps we've just been busy and haven't thought. I pray to those of us that way that you would enliven our hearts to engage you right now. Lord, some of us are sad today, and I pray that you'd bring comfort. Some of us are excited, and I pray that you would stir our faith. 
Lord, some of us, we're just at different places. But, Lord, here's our confidence. As we've read these letters, you know us, and you're with us. So I pray that you would meet each person here today and that you would speak to us by your grace and that you would change us. Lord, show us the church you want us to be, Grace Church, as we learn about this church. Help us to embrace what you've done at this church in Thyatira and help us avoid the compromises that they've made that we might bring honor and glory to you. So, Lord, grant us alertness and discernment and understanding of your text. Spirit of God, speak to us. Give us ears to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the challenges in this series has been uh, we're talking about things that are 2,000 years old, and we're talking about cities and environments, and in a very short period of time, like when we went through Philippians, we had the whole summer. So we talked a little bit about the church and a little bit about the context every week for a whole summer. So I've got one sermon to talk about a whole city and its church and what's going on there. And the, the gap has been the language is symbolic at times and the culture is different. So I felt like a lot of the message I'm bridging, uh, I'm building these bridges to the first century to how do we get that and apply it today. And so I felt the same this week and I'm reading all of this history of Thyatira and what's going on in the city and all about who is this Jezebel and looking in the Old Testament and doing all this. And then I picked up this one guy's book named Scott Daniels, and he summarized, this is how he opened talking about Thyatira, and he said, okay, this will be something that I think will instantly relate to, and there'll be no bridge necessary. This is his introduction to the letter to the Thyatira. He said, if you've ever watched gangster movies, okay, he had, he had me at gangster, uh, If you have ever watched gangster movies, at some point in the film, one of the mob members, usually the godfather, will be forced to order the killing of someone who had previously been a close associate and perhaps even a family member. Before condemning the person to, quote, sleep with the fishes, unquote, the mob boss will say this line, it's not poisonal, it's business. I practiced that all week. <laughs> so before killing this person who, or ordering the hit of this person who had been a close companion or even a family member, they will always say this, it's not personal, it's business. In other words, the person who is about to take the life of another is saying, if we lived in a world where only interpersonal relationships mattered, I would never do this. But we do not live in that kind of a world. We live in a world primarily determined by business. I think part of the reason for the success of mob-based movies and television programs is due to the fact that we are deeply fascinated by the obvious dichotomy created for those who live in a mobster's world. There is radical social commitments and intimate cultural ties that operate within a self-centered criminal value system. Listen to this. We are both shocked and fascinated by people who are able to divide their commitments in such a profound way that they can say with all seriousness, it's not personal, it's business. The church in Thyatira also found itself divided between its spiritual convictions and the economic pressures of the surrounding culture. Perhaps we can summarize the problem for the church at Thyatira with a play on the Godfather's phrase. The spirit of the church in Thyatira was one that tended to say, it's not spiritual, it's business. 
And so he takes this illustration. I, I love what he says here. We are shocked and fascinated by people who are able to divide their commitments in such a profound way. That's Thyatira. To divide commitments in such a way so that someone who was a close family member by blood or by uh, uh, crime syndicate, someone who was such, we're su- such a companion with in the same mission, even though the mission was evil, someone who we're so close to that we could, we could, we could take them out because this isn't personal. It's just business and live in these two worlds of values. And that's the church at Thyatira. And that's our challenge as well, living in two worlds. And that's what's happening with some of the people, not all of them by any means, but that's what's happening with some of the people in Thyatira. And I want to look at that uh, with you. First of all, we're going to look at Christ's evaluation of the church, and then we're going to look at his exhortation to the church. So how's the church doing in this world, the world of the church? Well, they're doing great. He begins by commending them this way. Verse 19, I know your works. I I know what you guys are doing, and here's what their works are. Number one, your love. Number two, your faith. Your three, service. And four, your patience and endurance. I know your love. He puts that first because that is the most important character quality of a life and of a church. And he says to this church, I know that you are living lives of love. That's one world that they are loving. This church is loving. They're opposite of the Ephesian church. We studied the Ephesian church three weeks ago, and Jesus says, you've left your love. They've, their love for Jesus and their love for one another has, has dwindled. And he actually says this to them. I'm about to have to come and remove your lampstand, which is I am going to have to turn out the lights in the church. Your, your influence, your witness, uh, your place of, in, in the world is about to, about to go dark, is what he says. So love is so important that the Ephesian church, he would, he would say it's almost game over, shut her down. Because they lack love. And yet he starts here with this church at Thyatira. They have love. There is a warm affection among the people for God. A warm affection for one another. And Jesus commends this in them. They are bearing that fruit. When the gospel, that is the good news of Jesus, what he's done for us that we sang about this morning. He died for our sins and he rose to give us new life. The new life of Jesus in us, if it looks like anything, it looks like this. Love. They will know you're my followers, Jesus said, because of your love for one another. So the good news is bearing fruit in Thyatira. They're loving. And he cannot say that about all the churches he writes to. Number two, they have faith. So much that he would hold this out. Exemplary faith. They live in a world that has been opposed to the gospel and opposed to them. And yet they trust Jesus amidst difficulty. And we're about to see in a minute they've endured. So their faith has been tested. So they trust. This is a high, high uh, value character quality. Jesus is always saying to the disciples in the gospel, oh, you have little faith. If you just had a little faith, the faith of a must, the size of a mustard seed, the tiniest faith, you'd move mountains. So, so faith is so important. And this church trusts God. They believe God. They're leaning on him. They have faith. Number three, they have service. So it's one thing to say, oh, yeah, we're very loving. Our church is very loving. But if no one ever serves anyone, then you'd say, where's the love? Where does the love show up? What does it look like? But this church is very loving, and it shows up because they serve. 
They're active. They're involved. They're putting the needs of others above their own needs. They're caring. I mean, to go to this church, gather with them on a Sunday morning, to hang out with them during the week, you would feel loved and you would feel practically cared for. And you'd be affected by the fact that they trusted Christ. Service. Number three, I'm sorry, number four, patient endurance. He commends them for enduring. So most of the churches we've read about had been persecuted. And so probably they've been opposed. They've been persecuted, but they have endured with patience. They haven't endured in anger. They haven't endured in bitterness. You're not saying you're making it through. You hate everybody that's opposed to you, but you're hanging in there. You still show up on Sundays. That's not what he says. You've patiently endured. They haven't charged God in the middle of it. They haven't reacted towards others impatiently, hatefully, fearfully. They've endured with patience. So the, the Holy Spirit has produced some high-quality fruit. That's a biblical term. There's great fruit on their tree. If the church was a tree, you would see some great fruit on it. Love, the chief fruit. Nothing better. Faith, service, and endurance. And if that's not enough, it gets better. Because the next thing he commends them for, I don't think he commends any other church for this. But this is, this is vital. Look what he says. Verse 19. I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And here's the kicker. That your latter works exceed the first. So what, that, what he's saying is your love today is more than it used to be. Your love for Jesus and your love for the church, your love for others is greater today than it was when you first believed. Your faith today is greater your, your, your works, your latter works, the ones you've recently done are greater than your early works. What does that mean? It means they're growing. It's one thing to say you're a loving church or you were a loving church, Thyatira, back in the day. But he says you're maturing, you're growing. So you love more now. You trust more now. You serve more now. You endure with more patience now than you used to. They're growing. They are maturing. And and many Christians, maybe many of us in the room, we'd have to look back and say, our our greatest spiritual fervor, our greatest passion, our greatest heart for God was in the past. I mean, some of us will look back and say, when I was first converted, when I first believed, man, I love the Lord. When I first believed, I couldn't read the Bible enough. We'd look back and say, man, I used to trust the Lord for everything. I had a simple childlike faith. We used to say, I used to serve, man, my whole life. My, look at my calendar. It was all oriented around serving others. We were on fire for the Lord. Many of us would look back at a greater day for our love and faith and service and endurance not Thyatira. They'd look to now and they would say, you love more than you used to. You serve more than you used to. I I find that very challenging because I asked myself as I read this this week, what would Christ say about me? Would he say your latter works exceed the first? Would he say what you've recently, your recent life represents greater devotion than your previous life? Am I maturing? Are you? Is our church Are we more loving than we used to be? Would you look at your life? Would you say, I'm more loving than I was a year ago or five years ago? Maybe you would say that would be glorious. That's certainly the Lord's intent for us. Do do I trust God more than I did a year ago? 
In other words, do I worry less than I used to because I'm trusting God? I'm not worried about outcome. I'm resting in him. Do I worry less? Do I have a deeper trust in difficulty? So when difficulty comes, is there faith in my heart? I just say, with confidence in God, not like I've given up, but with confidence in God, it's going to be okay. Do I do that more now than I used to? Am I asking for greater things? Is my faith in prayer greater now than it used to be? Am I believing God for glorious things, miraculous things, powerful things? Am I praying things that only he could answer because my faith is expanding? Or do I sort of use the sovereignty of God, which is a biblical truth that we're firmly committed to? Do I just use that as an excuse for not really having much faith? Eh, whatever will happen will happen. God's in charge. God's, God's sovereign. He'll do whatever he wants. That, that, that is not how sovereignty is displayed in the Scripture. Because God is sovereign, it leads us to pray with passion, with fervor, with confidence, with trust, with rest in our soul. What about service? Would I say that my, my serving is greater than it used to be, the way I serve my family, my coworkers, my church? It's interesting. The trajectory of every church plant almost that I've ever known anything about is that there's a core team where there's fast, uh, passionate service, and as the, team, as the church matures and becomes established, then it shifts from all hands on deck to a few hands on deck. And, and service wanes. I mean, I think this is typical. Love and passion wane as a believer knows the Lord longer. And it happens in churches too. Love and passion and service wane as a church gets older. How about patient endurance? Do I find myself, as I get older, becoming more irritated and less patient? Do I find myself being more troubled by difficulty? Or do I find my soul at rest where the more mature I get in the Lord, saying, this is, this is like how life really works. And Lord, you're good in the midst of it. I think this is one of the most compelling compliments that's given to any of the churches I think this statement that Jesus makes to Thyatira is one of the strongest evidences of Jesus at work in a church is that your works are greater than they used to be. It's the goal of every Christian, isn't it? It's the goal. You know what inspires me the most? What inspires me the most is not uh, when I'm preaching. And, and by the way, I don't, some people say to me sometimes, I need to give a caveat before I say this. Some people will come up to me after church, and if you've done this, I'm not thinking of you. I just know it's happened generally. Hey, I'm so sorry the baby was up all night, and that's why I was nodding off during the sermon. And saying, I didn't even notice. I mean, I know you're here, but I'm not like going, okay, row three, they look interested, they're bored. I'm not doing that. I'm just speaking and preaching. But if I do notice, what excites me is not a brand new believer sitting on the edge of their seat. That's exciting. If if, if there's a brand new believer that's like, come on, bring it, I'm hungry, that's great. What excites me is somebody I know has been saved 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and they're on the edge of their seat like they've never heard it before. That's glorious. I expect the person for whom this is all new, when I, I expect that person to go, this is amazing, this is all new. Not my preaching, but the message of the gospel. This is, this is amazing that Jesus loves me. I see Jesus in what you're saying. I hear him. This, this is touching my heart. It's the person who's heard it for 50 years that says, I heard about Jesus today, and it's fresh, and he's alive, and it makes me want to serve him all the more. We sang the songs. I've been singing Hark the Herald Angels Sing since I was two years old. 
And now I'm 72 years old, and it's like it was the first time today when I wanted to sing with the angels, glory to Jesus. That's what's amazing. And by the way, that shouldn't be surprising. That's the pattern. The longer someone knows Jesus, the better someone knows Jesus, the more our hearts should be drawn to him. Now, the expression might be different. I know like a new believer that's all antsy and excited and looks like they had too much caffeine. I get all that. So not, not, not the seasoned believer may not be like that, spiritually speaking, but the seasoned believer should be the one who is most amazed because they know him better than the new believer. And that's Thyatira. Your latter works exceed the first. We have folks in our church who are in their senior years, who are approaching their senior years, and this is my prayer. I'm in the approaching group myself. I want to pray for us in that group that this is the word of the Lord to us and that this is our testimony that our latter works exceed the first. That we're going out with a bang. That we're going out with more of a heart for the Lord and his people. The tendency can be to grow old and brittle and cynical And I've seen too much in all the churches I've been in. I've seen too much humanity. I've seen too much failure. I'm just going to check out and do my deal. That's the tendency. And I want to fight against that because that's not what the gospel produces. That's what the law produces. That's what the flesh produces. That's what the enemy produces. That's not what... Well, it's not what the law produces inspired by the gospel, I should say, inspired by the spirit. But it's just... That's what legalism produces. That'd be a better way to say it. But life is... He's 80 years old, and his latter works exceed his first. The church is celebrating its 25th anniversary, and there's more heart for the Lord than there was at their opening meeting. That's the goal, and that's what he says about this church. This is a great church in many ways. You'd want to be at the church at Thyatira. Who wouldn't want to be at a place where they loved each other, trusted the Lord, went through difficulty with patience, and served? Who doesn't want to sign up for that church? And it's growing and maturing. It's not plateaued. That's a good church. And then we get to this, verse 20. But I have this against you. So now Jesus is going to exhort the church. He's still evaluating, but he's going to exhort them and change. I have this against you. Look at verse 20. That you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Listen to this description. John Stott writes this about the church at Thyatira. After we read all that grace, those gracious words from Jesus about what a wonderful church this is, what he's done in them, then we read about Jezebel. This is what Stott writes. In view of this church's splendid record, it is sad to read a little further and discover its moral compromise. In that fair field, a poisonous weed was being allowed to luxuriate. In that healthy body, a malignant cancer had begun to form. An enemy was being harbored in the midst of the fellowship. It's a great church. God is at work in this growing, maturing church. But in this fair field, there is a poisonous weed that's growing up. It's being allowed to luxuriate, he says. And in this healthy body, there is a growing tumor that will take its life if it is not dealt with. The poisonous weed, the the tumor, 
is that woman Jezebel, is what he says, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching people, she's teaching, and she's seducing my servants. That's real Christians. Uh, It doesn't say that she is. She's likely not a Christian. But she is seducing. She's in the church. And she is seducing the followers of God to do two things, practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. If you were here last week, that's exactly what we read about the church of Pergamum. They were eating food sacrificed to idols, and they're practicing sexual immorality. Same thing here. This woman is leading them to do this. Well, who is she? Uh, Her name is probably not really Jezebel. Uh, That's probably not a name. It's probably a symbolic reference. He's saying there's that woman, Jezebel, that is she acts. There's a woman who is acting and affecting the church like this woman, Jezebel, who is a well-known Old Testament. uh, She's an infamous Old Testament character. This Old Testament character named Jezebel, she was a foreigner, but she married an Israelite king named Ahab, who was a weak, wimpy, sorry sort of king. And she married him and she influenced him. She did a couple things that were really bad. She influenced the king to build a temple to Ashtaroth, a foreign god, and she killed almost all of God's prophets. So she wiped out the people who were bringing truth to God's people, the prophets, and she built this this, uh, temple or this this place of worship to uh, Ashtaroth. So she led God's people into not hearing from him, but into worshiping a false god. And it's quite a story. I'm not going to get into it, but she is killed in a, in a, in a most heinous manner. And it's a, it's, it's a terrible time uh, in Israel's history. But Jezebel becomes proverbial for evil. She's just like the picture of evil because she invades God's people and she seeks to bring destruction from the inside. And so he says, you've got a woman in your church and she's a Jezebel. She's just like Jezebel. Why? Well, how is she like Jezebel? Well, she's teaching the people of God to not listen to the truth. Matter of fact, she says she's a prophet, a prophetess, and she's leading them to idolatry. She's just like Jezebel. She's working from the inside. See, Jezebel wasn't a foreign, uh, she wasn't a foreign queen. She was the queen married to Ahab. She was on the inside of God's people. She was on the inside. She was the poisonous weed that was affecting the people of God. And she's doing the same thing. She's mystical. So she's a prophetess. Uh, there, There was a genuine gift of prophecy in the New Testament church. And women could use the gift of prophecy in the New Testament church. We read it several places, Acts 2 and, um, uh, and uh, 1 Corinthians 11 in particular, of women prophesying. So that they use that gift, but she, she isn't speaking for God. As a matter of fact, uh, verse 24 says that she is uh, holding on to what's called the deep things of Satan. Now, this could be sarcasm. It could be kind of like she says they're the deep things of God, but they're really the deep things of Satan. So she has got these things. She's revealing these truths that are leading people into sin. How in the world is this possible? How in a growing church, the first 20 minutes of this sermon spent on the first three verses of this passage indicate that this church is probably stronger than any church you visited. Our church or any other church in many ways, love, faith, service, endurance, growth, and maturity. In those ways, they excel. And yet they've got some people in the church, and it may we don't know how many it is, but we've got some people in church that are being influenced by this Jezebel woman that is leading them to immorality and leading them to idolatry. How is that 
possible. Last week, I gave the historical context of Pergamum and showed how probably what was happening there had to do with worship in idol temples and also worship of the emperor and that sort of thing. Now, here's the interesting thing about Thyatira. If I'd read this from one person, I wouldn't bring it up. I read this from everyone that I read anything about Thyatira. They all said the same thing. So they're all cheating off the same source or it's true, one or the other. But this is what they said about Thyatira, all the scholars that I read was that Thyatira wasn't, it was an insignificant city, so it wasn't known for emperor worship. They hadn't won from Rome the right to build a temple to any particular emperor, as both Smyrna and Pergamum had done. So they weren't a noted city. So there may have been emperor worship, but it wasn't a big deal like it was in those other cities. Also, there wasn't a well-known god that was like god of the city. We talked about Asclepius being the god of Pergamum. We talked about a huge temple to Zeus in Pergamum. There was nothing like that in Thyatira. However, one thing that was known about Thyatira was it was a manufacturing city. And it was a a blue-collar manufacturing city. And and the most famous inhabitant of Thyatira we meet in the book of Acts in Philippi. It is Lydia, who is from Thyatira. She's living in Philippi, and she's selling this rare purple cloth. If you remember her, we studied her last year. And that is, she is the poster woman, poster person for Thyatira. They were a manufacturing city. And archaeologists and historians have told us that they, were, that they worked in guilds. I mentioned this a little bit last week, but they worked in guilds. So whatever your trade was, you were a part of a trade guild, kind of like a mini union, we might say. You were a part of that. And historians have found the following, archaeologists and historians have found the following in Thyatira, that they had guilds for wool workers, they had guilds for linen workers, there was a guild for garment manufacturers, there was a guild for dyers, There was a guild for tanners, for potters, for bakers, for slave dealers, and for bronze smiths. So these various individuals, if you were in one of those trades, you would gather in a guild. That is, you would gather uh, in an association. You would gather in a union. And to have economic prosperity in your particular trade involved being in that guild. So you, they would get together, they would perhaps swap techniques, swap what they're doing, tell, tell about how the business is going. They were somewhat unified, so there was a union between them in some way. So you had to be a part of a guild to really participate economically in Thyatira. Here's the thing about the guilds. They were, like everything in this time, religious in nature. There was a belief in multiple gods. And so whenever the guild met, they would take a glass of wine. They would pour it as an offering unto the god that they came of. Whether they seriously believed in the god or nominally believed, uh, they would would give some form of worship to a god in their guild meetings. And then their meetings were characterized, like I mentioned last week in the temple worship, they would be characterized by drunkenness characterized by immorality. So it started with a drunken, maybe it started with some business items, then a drunken feast, which often led to sexual immorality. Sexual immorality as they gathered or following their gathered. So it led one commentator to say, what happens at the guild stays at the guild. That was the environment. And that context could potentially give the reason for what we read here. Because you look, how could someone in the church say, it's okay to go worship idols? It's okay to go have sex with people you're not married to? How could someone in the church say that in a godly church and win any hearing at all? How does that happen? Well, it happens because it's so ingrained in the culture. 
And so she wouldn't have to say much. This woman wouldn't have to say much to separate one's spiritual life from one's, let's call it, practical life, one's real life, one's business life. The, the dichotomy that we talked about, which this isn't spiritual, it's business, which I do my church things with my church people. I do my church things on Sunday morning and Wednesday night in someone's living room for a community group. And I do my world things, my business things during the week and my club things and my hobby things and my friend things and my social things. I do that over here. I live in these kind of a two worlds. So she was likely teaching that, hey, it's okay to participate in the regular life of the guild. You're okay. She probably taught some kind of license that is freedom to sin. The gospel gives us freedom to avoid sin, but license gives us freedom to sin. Hey, look, of course, when you're at the church, you're forgiven. The Lord forgives you. The Lord loves you, but the Lord understands there's a real world out there that's not the world of the nice church folk that you're a part of. And when you're in the real world, sometimes you have to live like you don't have to. You can go to the guild meeting. You don't have to in your heart really worship the God when everybody confesses some pledge or whatever they might do. You don't have to really believe it in your heart. You can still go there. You can still go there and party. You can still go there and participate with no difference at all. You can live a dichotomy. You can live in two worlds. You can be a hypocrite. See, there's two kinds of hypocrites. In the New Testament, we always think of hypocrite or often think of the hypocrite being the Pharisee. The Pharisee is the hypocrite who, who says they're godly, but it's just on the outside. It's not in their heart. They're a good church person, but they're snooty. They're arrogant. They're self-righteous. They're condemning. They're judging everybody. And Jesus says, you're a hypocrite because you act all holy, but you don't even love people. You act all holy, but you're not trusting Jesus. You're trusting your own works. That's a hypocrite. There's another type of hypocrite that's a Jezebel hypocrite in this way, which says she's in the people of God. She's claiming to be a part of them, yet she's saying it's okay to do these other things. Her teachings lead people to worship idols. Her teachings lead people to be involved in some type of sexual immorality. And the Bible teaches that we're to have an integrated life. The Bible knows nothing about spiritual life and then your secular life separately. The Bible knows nothing about your personal life with Jesus and it's just business over here. The Bible knows nothing about this is spiritual, this is business. This is sacred, this is secular. This is my church life, this is my world life. This is what I do around the people of God. This is what I do in my real life, wink, wink. We all know what that's about. The Bible knows nothing about a disintegrated life, a dual life, a hypocrite life. The Bible teaches an integrated life, a singular life, that I live for Jesus, and it may look different in different expressions of what I'm doing, but I live for Jesus when I'm ushering at church. I live for Jesus when I'm playing drums at church. I live for Jesus when I'm sitting in the pew listening to the sermon. I live for Jesus when church folk come over for lunch today. And I live for Jesus in the afternoon when I watch the ball game. And I live for Jesus when I wake up and go to work tomorrow. And I live for Jesus when I'm in the staff meeting at 10 a.m. And I live for Jesus when all the folks at work go out to eat for lunch. I live for Jesus right there. 
not obnoxious, self-righteous, but I live for Jesus. So there is an integrated Christian life, and there is a bifurcated, a dichotomy, a dualistic Christian life, which says there's secular and sacred, or there's spiritual and non-spiritual, or there's my church friends and my world friends, and never the twain shall meet. The greatest fear would be that group would ever come together and find out that I live in two worlds. And so this is how... In a world where your business required, almost required, your idolatry, that something like this could happen. Maybe our situation isn't quite like that. You know, maybe you say, hey, I'm not in Thyatira. Some of us do have a direct application to something like this. Some of us work in an environment where the pressures of work directly place us in positions of compromise. I've talked to sales guys who tell me this. Um, in my world, we have a, I have a budget uh, to entertain clients. This is my job. And so entertaining clients can look like uh, going to an environment, not where we just have a social drink for dinner, but where it's partying and drunkenness. That, that is the entertainment. That, that is the social uh, connection. It, it's not a glass of wine with dinner. It's drunkenness. It's get a designated driver, call a cab. They're wasted. It's, that's what I'm called to do. I've had sales guys tell me it's expected in some places that when you have a client come in, you'll take them to dinner, you'll take them for drinks, you take them to a strip club. That's exactly Thyatira. That, that welcome to, that's exactly an application where my, to, to get business, to work, it, envi- it involves placing myself in positions of compromise that are sinful. Most of us don't have that situation. Most of us don't have that direct of a temptation to compromise, like going to the guild meeting or taking the potential prospective clients to an environment you would never invite the community group to, okay? So most of us don't have that, that kind of a world. But we can have a very related world. You may not go to the guild meeting where there's pagan worship going on, but you may step into a work environment or a school environment tomorrow that's governed by a very different set of values altogether. The guild was directed by pagan values, worshiping a pagan god. And you may go into a workplace tomorrow, a school tomorrow, where the values are very contradictory to what you're hearing today and what the scripture teaches us. You may step into a work environment where dishonesty, if not downright lying, uh, fudging the truth, presenting one image that you know in your conscience is not totally accurate, that dishonesty is acceptable, maybe commendable, maybe necessary, according to others, to win the deal. You may go into a work environment or a school environment where, where if you get with coworkers, that immediately the conversation goes to gossip and slandering the character and the work of others who aren't present with you. That the very nature of the speech, if, if we have a free moment to talk, if it's not sports or it's not the job, if it's people, instantly they're slicing people down. That they're, they're gossiping, they're slandering, they're passing on stories, they're critiquing our supervisor, the boss, or corporate, or whatever it is. That's just, the, that's just the way we talk on the job. Or sexual immorality is just a given. Now, nobody's going to force you to have sex with someone you're not married to on, through your work. Granted. 
but it's just a given. And so people talk about it. The jokes concern sexual immorality. The comments about members of the opposite sex that you meet or you work with or you see, that they are sexual innuendo and that sort of stuff. Language that celebrates the reality of sexual immorality and free sexual expression and not what the Scripture teaches. That's the jokes that the other students are telling, that you're hanging out with, that the coworkers are telling. So you're stepping into a world where the value system of humor, the value system of appropriate speech, the value system of what honors and dignifies another person and glorifies the Lord, it's a totally separate value system. You, You go into work tomorrow and greed and selfish ambition are driving character qualities in the workplace, and they they seem to bring success and honor. You go into a context, you come to church, and the goal, at least the stated goal, and we don't live up to this as church folk, but the stated goal is that we're for one another. We're supporting one another, that we would sacrifice from ourselves to bless one another, that we would consider others more valuable than ourselves. That's what the Bible teaches, and that's what we're all growing in by the grace of God. So we put others' needs above our own. And tomorrow, you go into a workplace, your basketball team, your buddies from school, your workplace, whatever it is, backstabbing and disloyalty are common and understood that that kind of whatever it takes for me to move up the social chain or move up the corporate ladder or whatever it is, it's okay. So that's not Thyatira. That's Bible Belt with pagan values is what that is. And so you may not be going to the guild meeting, but you may be in an environment that is a real challenge because the behavior and the heart and the motivation of people frankly, who just don't know Jesus. The Spirit of God's not alive in them. They're ruled by the flesh. They're ruled by the world. They're ruled by the enemy. The the, the people that you, that that perhaps some, not all, but some that you encounter, they, they, they live in a way that's very contrary. They challenge their speech, their thoughts, their language, their actions. And so the temptation is to live in two worlds. The temptation is to say, I'm forgiven, I have grace, I'm okay with the Lord, and the church people, and they're a little naive to how the world really works, because when I'm over here, this is how it really works. And there's a temptation to compromise. And this passage addresses that. First of all, Jesus knows your environment. Jesus knows. He gets it. He knows economic pressure and the temptation to compromise like they would have felt there. He knows temptation. He faced greater temptation than any of us, one-on-one with the devil in the desert. And he said no and yes to his father, and he did that in our place so that those of us who believe in Jesus, our record is clean before the father because of what Jesus did in resisting temptation for us. Receive that truth. So he knows our temptation. He won the battle. He provides by his grace a way of escape. God is very good to us in our temptations. Very, very good. And that should comfort us. But this passage also brings the fear of the Lord for some in Thyatira. We're going to see in a minute, not everybody in Thyatira, not everybody at Grace Church, not everybody in the room, but for some, well, we should all fear the Lord, but for some it brings a very specific fear of the Lord. 
Jesus introduces himself, verse 18, the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire. There is this blazing, blinding holiness in his sight. Now, he immediately commends them. I know your works. He immediately commends them. But he also says in verse 23 to some of them as well, uh, he also says uh, that I am he, verse 23, who searches mind and heart. So he is the one who comes to see the church. And what does he say to those who follow Jezebel and to her herself? This sort of idea that you could be in the church and yet you could have this sense from the Lord, this prophetic sense, this sense of teaching that it's okay to worship idols. It's okay to pursue idols. It's okay to practice sexual immorality. Verse 20, what does he do? Verse 21, I gave her time to repent. Jesus was gracious. The pastors, the elders, somebody confronted her and gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Verse 22. Now, by the way, that could be literal, or sometimes immorality is used in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, as a form of idolatry. I used the Bible, I used the language from the Scripture last week, was, which was they were, in essence, whoring about. Whoring around spiritually means that I am chasing other gods besides God. And so sexual immorality can mean that, or it could be she was literally involved in a sexual relationship outside of marriage. I don't know. Verse 22. Behold... Here's what Jesus says. I will throw her onto a sick bed, the very couch where she was, the very bed where she was doing her stuff will be a sick bed. She'll be, become ill. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. So either those who are literally sleeping with this woman or those who are worshiping other gods, I will throw them in great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children. Who are her children? The people who believe in her, what she's doing. I will strike her children dead. Really? Well, at Acts 5, it happened. Two people walk into the church, lie in front of the whole church, and fall over dead. So at times, Jesus, at times that's happened. It's happened in the Bible where the certain people of God have been given a chance to repent, and they haven't, and he's taken their lives. So I read that literally. These people who are following her, this is a fledgling church in a hostile world that continued compromise will snuff out the witness of the church. And so Jesus is serious. He says they, they could be dead for that. I will give to each of you according to your works. Verse 23, what's he saying here? Those who live in unrepentant sin, who are called to follow the Lord, who are given graciousness and patience, at some point they're going to reap what they sow. That's what he's saying. So that is very heavy. For those who are living the compromised Jezebel life, Jesus gives the strongest appeal to turn to him and to repent, to live a unified life, to live one life, not to live... Not to live in this kind of freedom which abuses grace, which it doesn't matter what I'm doing. He's not talking about people who are repenting and seeking to follow the Lord but stumbling. That's different. Someone who's trying to follow the Lord and is stumbling along the way, welcome to everybody in the room. That's Christianity. He's talking about people that say, no, this is spiritual. She said it's okay. It's grace. It's grace. This is someone who's abusing truth and knows what they're doing, is being warned, and is going on their way. So it's very heavy to the hypocrite. How about to the rest of the church? <clears throat> Assume most of the church wasn't following her. How about to the rest of the church? Check this out. This is so good. Verse 24. To the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching of Jezebel, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you 
I say I do not lay on you any other burden. I got nothing to say to you of critique or concern. Those of you who are what, verse 19, who love me, those of you who have faith, it's a love that stumbles, a faith that stumbles. Those of you who are serving my people and the world, those of you who are patiently enduring, not perfectly, not flawlessly, but, but those of you who are, but you're growing, your works are better today. Even if you had to go three steps forward, two steps back, two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, one step, you know, whatever, you're, you're moving, you're growing, you're repenting where you fail. To the rest of you, I, I don't have any burdens to lay on you. <laughs> is that not wonderful? See, here's what we have, here's what we do. If the world is lax and the culture is sinful, then, then we just start introducing a bunch of laws. That's what we can do. Well, we don't want to go over there, so we've got all these other rules that we can give you down at the church that we can give you a whole set of rules so that you never, we don't ever want to go to Jezebel. And so the Bible says this, but we've stacked five layers of protection on top of the Bible so we don't ever go there. That's what we do. And he doesn't say, I don't have any burden. I don't have five new things that aren't in the Bible for you to do. I don't have 30 strategies. I just say, do what the scripture says. Follow me, you're going to be okay. I don't lay any burden, other burden on you. Just be the same person at church that you are at the workplace. That's the calling. Just be a disciple in your marriage and a disciple when you coach Little League and a disciple when you go on a business trip and a disciple when you're on the couch with the remote in your hand watching TV and a disciple, when you're having friends, just follow me in whatever you're doing. Love me. Enjoy following me. And just be who you are, wherever you are. And I got no other burdens for you. That's, that's the essence. Don't live these two worlds is what he's in essence saying. Let me read you this quote. I found this so helpful from John Stott. He says, we must not overreact to an extreme laxity around us by developing an extreme rigidity in ourselves. That is, if the world is lax, we're going to be rigid. We're going to be, we don't need to do that. Christ has no new burden for those living in an environment where the standards are low. We're simply to hold fast to what we already have. That's what he says. That is to say, we, what he has already given us in the Bible. What is this? It's balanced, joyful, exhilarating righteousness of the scripture. The glorious liberty of the royal law. That's what he says. We're just to live a joyful life serving him in whatever happens, finding life in him, sharing life together, and being a light in the darkness. So for those who are seeking to follow the Lord, he has nothing to add to them. For those who are saying it's okay to live like the devil over here and live like a Christian over here, he's got a strong warning. The woman who's teaching that, I'm about, she's about to be in serious trouble. I'm going to lay her out on a sick bed, and I'm going to kill some of her children. That's not me. That's not angry preacher guy. That's Jesus. It's in red. I'm going to kill him. That's what he says. So he's very serious about hypocrisy, and he is very gracious to the sincere. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. The legalistic Pharisees, he had his strongest words for them. Those who want to serve him, my burden, my yoke is easy. What I put on you, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. I'll carry your burden. Those who want to live like Jezebel, strong words. Strong words. Legalism and license, Jesus brings adjustment. Gives a chance to repent from both, but he brings a judgment. Following the Lord, he brings nothing but his favor. 
The guy I quoted at the beginning who said it's not spiritual, it's just business, who said it's like living in two worlds and we're fascinated by living in two worlds. He cl- I read you his opening paragraph on Thyatira. Here's his closing paragraph. God doesn't divide our lives into the physical and the spiritual or the sacred and the secular. God doesn't allow us to segment our lives in that way. We don't get to say, this is the business part of my life. This is my family part. This is my spiritual part and so on. Although we at times may assume different roles of responsibility, God sees our lives as a united whole. Thus, one can't say to God, it's not spiritual, it's business, because it all belongs to him. And for those who hear his words in Thyatira, he gives this glorious promise. He closes with, um, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I'll give authority over the nations. Verse 28, I will give him the morning star. That's Jesus. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So he says, hang in there because there's coming a day when you will rule. I do not know what that means. What does it mean that believers will conquer and rule with Jesus? This is one of the times in this series, again, that I say, I don't know exactly what that means when that happens. I don't, I don't know all that, but I know it's like really, really good. So it's re- to rule and reign with Jesus is better than following Jezebel and getting killed dead. Okay, I know it's way better. So he holds out this promise, and then he says, I'll give him the morning star. That's Jesus. I give myself to you. So you follow me, and one day you will stand before me, and you will have me. I will, you are mine, and I will be yours. That's the great promise he gives there. So you can follow this other path, and it is destructive. It is deadly. It means that perhaps you're not even a believer. Jezebel's probably not a believer. She's probably a false prophetess in the church. And she's leading others astray. So you can go that way or you can ask for grace to stand and live the same way wherever you are. And for that to happen, we need help. We need discernment. We need help. Some of the illustrations I gave at one point of business guys have said this to me. It's often been because someone's asking questions. How do you deal in this kind of situation? Not that I've had the same experience, but they're just asking a friend. What do you do about this kind of thing? All right, my, my jobs, my boss is asking me to do this. What would you do about this? I'm in a situation where the guy on my team, the gal on my team is doing this and saying this. What should I do? I want to be a good witness. I want to be loving. I, I'm, I'm working with someone. Their lifestyle is this, and we're together in social contexts on business trips, and What should I say or do about that? We need help. We need wisdom. God doesn't call us to self-righteousness. He calls us to be a light. He calls us to be winsome. He calls us to be loving. But he also calls us not to compromise uh, what is righteousness. And we need help. So we need the community to help us, to pray for us, to encourage us, to help us to be a witness. We gather for strength and we scatter to be lights in the darkness. And we, we're to support one another as we scatter as well. So we need that help, and we need the promise of what's coming, ruling and reigning with Christ and Christ himself. That's the message to Thyatira, that they cannot live in two worlds, but they must live for him in whatever world they're in. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.